today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Boy, uh, did Dan McTagg have this one right. The Federal Court of Appeal has dealt a blow to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, quashing the government's approvals to build the project. They ruled the National Energy Board's assessment was so flawed it should not have been relied on by the federal cabinet. Does this mean it's dead? What happens now? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com, and I bet his ear's flaming and his phone line is burning off the hook. Dan, how are you today? Looking for 4.5 billion bucks and potentially a job in about a year or two when uh, I can't afford uh, without a job to buy the next uh, liter of gasoline. How's that? <laughs> so uh, wh- where are we with this? Uh, are you, you said this will not get built. Does this nope. mean it will not get built or is this another hurdle? Uh, no, it's, a, it's another hurdle, but the, the hurdle is just another brick in the wall to take away from Pink Floyd. Um, the fact is, uh, this is all designed to prevent Canadian oil from expanding from where it is now, and to keep it anemic and to keep it uh, un- underinvested. Look, uh, our oil now sells for 37 bucks a barrel. Venezuela is a basket case. They're still getting 64 bucks a barrel for their oil, no matter how bad it is over there. People are starving in that country, fleeing the country, but they're able to hold up because they can get access to market. Uh, we can't, and we have uh, had a number of very significant, very powerful, well-funded foreign NGOs, or, uh, environmental organizations, who pushed this appeal and convinced one single judge that the good of the many comes before the interests of the few. So, uh, or vice versa. In this case, uh, we are looking at uh, a decision made. Uh, I don't have all of the language here in front of me. What I've received from at least four reports tells me that I think the judge herself may have uh, uh, not been aware of the extent to which uh, some of the concerns that she had raised had already been addressed, including the fact that when you send heavy oil and it happens to spill, not that that would happen, but if it were to spill in the waterways where it is being delivered or where it is being received, that somehow would be impossible to clean up. That would be true if it was in the Fraser River, but it's out in the middle of uh, open, wide waters. So that's just one example. The other one, of course, being uh, concerns about marine safety. I've read the 159 recommendations of the NEB, and I wrote, I read the report, and I'm pretty darn sure that those in Cabinet or those who offered the paper to Cabinet for support did the same thing as well. And nowhere under the sun can I find anybody who would make that kind of a, or, or draw that kind of conclusion. The marine safety would be the most uh, would be the most safeguarded and uh, the best practices available anywhere in the world. And we're not talking about a lot of ships. We're talking about one ship a day. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, mischief that has gone into this decision. I'm not going to, uh, you know, comment as to what the decision the judge has made or why the decision was made. Just that uh, I think it's uh, a terrible decision for Canada, a major setback for an important sector of our economy. And uh, it'll be uh, months, if not years, before we're able to recover from this. Uh, the, the justice said that this was so flawed it should not even be relied on by the federal cabinet. I mean, that's pretty damning. Well, that, uh, that's a judge's opinion of what uh, ought to and what not ought to have happened. Uh, the federal government uh, did, in fact, have it the wherewithal. I've read it, and I certainly have no skin in the game. Uh, I'm not in cabinet. Uh, I don't have... Uh, you know, any particular perspective uh, one way or another, but I thought the uh, decision by the MEP was very thorough. It took a year and a half to two years. They consulted everybody. It's just that those that didn't get consulted or didn't like the an- or did get consulted didn't like the answer. What in fact they wanted. So where does that leave the project? Because they'll never be happy. 
Well, that's right. The project is dead, as uh, I mentioned to you last month, and I think any future project is all dead. And that sucking sound you hear is investments leaving this country because there's no credible, reliable business that will punt money in Canada knowing that that's the kind of an outcome. You could have some judge decide to make a decision based on whatever uh, side that they wish to take in this. But it's clear to me that uh, as, as long as we continue, and we are a constitutional government, we are not a we are not a parliamentary government. That's long since gone, since 1982, and I get that. Uh, but short of a of a quickly a quick appeal, which I don't think will be the case, and the opening that the federal court uh, judge has given, I have friends of mine who've been federal court of appeal judges, and I find it interesting. I certainly like to probe the background to find out a little bit more about. Uh, uh, you know, what, under what circumstances was the judge uh, uh, availed to this particular case? Uh, uh, you know, we, we don't question our judiciary in this country, nor should we, but we should certainly question the wisdom of the decision, which I think is uh, fundamentally, from what I see at first glance, uh, very, very poorly researched. Uh, and so uh, pointing fingers at cabinet may be one thing. I prefer to point the finger at the judge and say that she is not aware of the decisions that she's made. And so I, and I've given you two examples at the outset with marine safety so and with the effect of that in, in the water. Uh, there are peer-reviewed papers that demonstrate this beyond a shadow of doubt. So if, if she doesn't know uh, what she's talking about, who does, what happens now? Well, Scott, I don't think anything happens now. The federal, federal government have to make a decision um, on appeal, um, perhaps refer the whole matter to the Supreme Court of Canada, because this is going to be, um, I mean, parties are going to use our courts as a strategic uh, weapon in order to stop anything and everything they don't like. Uh, You can lawyer this thing until you're blue in the face. We watch movies about this kind of stuff and say, yeah, lawyers will always tie things up. That may be true, in TV, but it's certainly true here in Canada, and it's unfortunate because it's now uh, taking dead aim at one of the most significant um, economic engines of our country. The prosperity that you and I have enjoyed for the past 20 years is directly related to our ability to sell oil to the rest of the world. No other industry comes close. Yes, we have the automotive sector. Yes, we have uh, energy in terms of electricity, uh, agriculture, and mining. But this particular industry is the one that actually tipped the scales in favor of Canada getting out of the debts that we had to, uh, you know, to extricate ourselves from in the early 1990s. Uh, without this industry, uh, you're talking regions of the country that were have provinces providing equal money for the rest of the country uh, and equalization payments now finding themselves fundamentally, you know, in 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 no man's land. And this kind of, uh, you know, uh, this this limbo that we now find ourselves in, in which we have to bend over backwards for everybody and provide social license means that uh, if I'm an outside investor, if I'm putting money in an industry, I'm certainly not going to put it into the Canadian petroleum industry. And by the way, I just tweeted a few minutes ago, congratulating my American drivers in the U.S. Midwest who use almost exclusively Canadian oil, that they're going to continue to enjoy cheaper prices that pumps for diesel, gasoline, jet fuel, while Canadians, with a weaker Canadian dollar, I see the dollar has dropped almost a full penny already today in light of this, uh, can continue to expect to pay more at the pumps. So That's will, what happens in a country that bends over backwards to uh, outside uh, pressure. Will So will this be appealed? I mean, uh, we own this thing now, so what happens? Well, maybe we get the Prime Minister to comment on it. Uh, he's got his hands full with NAFTA, which, of course, uh, he didn't think was a smart thing to go into the bilateral, but I won't go down that road. Now he's going to have to decide what he wants to do here, uh, appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, as well as push back on the uh, provincial government, which has said it doesn't want this to go through. 
that's the levers that are available to the federal government. But I have a feeling that this is going to be far more consequential for the resource-based provinces, both economically and politically. Uh, I haven't heard from Alberta, and I can imagine that uh, the disappointment would be an understatement. Um, This is something that uh, strikes to the core of their economic well-being. And, uh, you know, at a time when uh, I don't see Saudi Arabia backing off on its desire to continue to invest heavily in its oil, uh, why, uh, you know, Canada has now decided to, uh, or allowed itself to be painted or pushed into a corner that I think is going to have detrimental effects for all of us. And make no mistake, uh, the revenues, the investments, the jobs, uh, the economic activity that uh, is derived from Canadian, the Canadian petroleum industry and the oil industry, uh, you can't just, you, you just won't have the economy you enjoy today without it. And our social programs, your Medicare, your pensions, your, uh, you know, your uh, uh, programs uh, uh, are very much at uh, at uh, at risk. How I'm can very, they, very concerned about this. Dan, how can the government not appeal this when they bought it? I mean, can they say, <laughs> oh, no, can they say, uh, we like, is the deal off now because it, it doesn't go through? Where Where is the prime minister on this? Where well, what would, How got, would he be feeling today? He's got 13 months to turn this around or there will be another prime minister. And I have a feeling it will be Andrew Scheer on this base, on this alone. And his proposal will be, I'm going to build a pipeline east, west, and south. So let me um, ask and, you this, Dan. If, yeah. if if we're dealing with this now, would it have mattered what government was in control? I mean, at the end of the day, would we not have ended up here anyway? I think we would have had uh, the process well underway and well in advance. Uh, we wouldn't have been dithering. This decision to, to proceed was in 2016. We're 2018 heading to 2019. It should not have taken this long to get a spade into the ground, but we we, you know, we continue to allow political first a political assault, uh, a small uh, three seat party uh, Green Party in, in British Columbia to work with the NDP to uh, prevent uh, and to uh, provide uh, to to serve as a uh, legal um, uh, legal blockage uh, in in British Columbia for this. The second factor, of course, I think it, it, it does require us to 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 think about this a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, of course, if you're going to allow every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Sarah, and Cindy, and uh, Michelle to come forward, uh, and with objections, sooner or later you're going to find a court somewhere along the way that's going to say, yeah, maybe you got a point here. So we're just going to stop this project. As I said, I think it's legal mischief, uh, but it, uh, it had its source in, uh, in, in uh, the attempt by the Prime Minister and his colleagues to bend over backwards to everybody under the term social license. I got to tell you, if you have to get unanimity on any decision in this country, nothing's going to get built and nothing's mm. going to get done. And you and I are going to be the, of, out of are going to see our collective uh, well-being as a nation very much compromised over the next several years. So, could another government coming in get this built, or would they not just be? How would they deal with the same problems? Well, they now have to deal with the legal, uh, but the legal uh, was allowed to come about uh, two years after the complaint was initiated. Right. Two, three years. Yeah, two and a half years. This thing could have been built by now. But I'm not saying you would sneak it in beforehand. I'm no. Simply of the view but that, you'd have uh, to run this course anyway. Well, you would. Uh, you would, certainly wouldn't have had to buy it. Yeah. You certainly wouldn't have had to, you know, uh, to have someone say, well, you know, it's really not quite built yet, so we're just stopping it right now. If it had been 90% built, I think at this point, as we do in the United States or any other country in the world, uh, you know, Kinder Morgan's started a project in 2017. It finishes next month. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an oil conduit that's going to be going from the Permian Basin in Texas all the way up to the Gulf Coast. It's not as long, but it's certainly not as complicated, and certainly doesn't face the kind of regulatory uncertainty with political and legal mischief now being mixed into it. Look, Canada has got to make a decision. It either has to fish or it has to cut bait. 
Does it want to be in the oil business or does it not want to be in the oil business? And if it's not going to be in the oil business, selling uh, windmills and, uh, and, and solar panels because other parts of the world are way ahead on that with cheap labor and uh, substandard environmental uh, 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 oversight when it comes to building those things. So how is the Prime Minister feeling today, Dan, do you think? don't know. I would think he's uh, re- recognizing that uh, pandering to one particular group in this country has certainly led uh, to the uh, impossible outcome of uh, not having a project built, being on the hook for $4.5 billion dollars, and potentially uh, sending a message to the investment community uh, of any type of resource in this country that doing business in Canada is dangerous and risky. So that being said, is he just going to say to everybody, this being the Prime Minister, oh, well, we tried and uh, it's not going to work? Or yeah, is well, he or is he uh, mad at hell and is, or mad as hell and going to get it, Bill? Oh, he's got no choice. He's, uh, he's got to choose his poison. Uh, he, you know, Churchill put it well, there's no... Uh, there's no trap as dangerous as the one you set for yourself. He placated this group. Uh, he realizes that this group is committed to destroying the Canadian oil industry because they can't do it elsewhere around the world. They'll be shown the door. He now has to make a decision. Is he all in for Canada and the industry, or is he going to uh, pull out of this thing and uh, wind up with uh, no one happy about the country? And I, you know, he has to recognize it's a legal issue. It's a political issue. It's also a constitutional issue. I, I have a sense uh, from my many years in being in this business uh, that uh, Western Canada isn't going to sit back and be quiet about this. They've had enough, yeah. and yeah. I don't blame them one single bit. Uh, what do you think the Prime Minister will do here, considering his call on the other two pipelines? Well, he's either going to have to revive them, which I think his uh, suitor, Mr. Shearer, is prepared to do, at least as far as Energy East is concerned. And it's going to be what about what about Quebec? Well, it's half, the pipeline is half built. Um, and by the way, maybe you just bring it down to Ontario and uh, you run it through the uh, St. Lawrence mm. uh, by ship, because, of course, that is navigable waters. And it's absolute federal jurisdiction. So, I mean, there are, you know, there are issues that you're going to have to deal with one way or another. Either you want to build pipelines or you don't, because the practical problem that he's placed himself in is that by saying we're going to give social license, whether it's Eastern Canada, Western Canada, or to any Canadian, means that they can object and... Uh, Maybe you uh, you push the envelope a little too far on that, and this is, uh, uh, again, uh, something that's coming back to haunt him. I think now he's got to recognize that uh, pragmatism, which his father would have talked about uh, and, and certainly had a lot more uh, involved in some of his decisions, um, has to be the, uh, the, the rule of the day. And uh, the only pragmatic approach I can see is one that's, uh, it, that's prepared to address the reality that uh, going down the environmental and, uh, you know, absolutism uh, leads to economic dislocation and a number of negatives for the country. We can uh, have these debates as long as we want, but today we're facing the prospect of, uh, you know, uh, 20 to 50 to $100 billion of economic activity disappearing in front of us. And I don't think the country can afford that. What People is Kinder Hospital so they can't afford that. What is Kinder Morgan thinking of right now? <laughs> Probably happy they got out of Dodge uh, because they're doing very well south of the border. Um, and they're doing very well where they've made investments. So, you know, they're probably happy they got to this point, but, you know, they can't be blamed for this. This is something Canadians are going to have to take responsibility for and ownership for. But, you know, when you don't have pipelines and you're not getting orders to build steel, stainless steel, whatever pipelines, you don't have economic activity uh, happening because we can't get our number one, our resources to market, including our number one resource to market, 
Canadians are going to have to start to think long and hard about this idea that, uh, you know, uh, it's all about, uh, you know, hugging trees and, uh, you know, making sure the sky is not falling. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but people are going to have to become a little bit more principled and better understanding of what's happening in front of them because your nation is losing its uh, economic vitality uh, by uh, by these kind of decisions day in, day out. The fact that we, and I'll come back to this, Dan, the fact that, you know, Trudeau purchased this pipeline, I mean, we bought it, it's ours now. Does that, doesn't that mean there has to be an appeal? Doesn't that mean he has to, to move well, forward? Well, he will appeal it. He will appeal it. And there's a, if, if there's a, actually, federal court justice gave a, a way out to be more thoroughly consultative of the people who are opposing it anyways, which is kind of, I mean, it's uh, it's ironic, if not hypocritical, to say, hey, you got to go talk to the people who come before saying they have been consulted. If you haven't been consulted on this, I think it's very fair to say that the consultation won't change your view that you oppose this pipeline. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an exercise in stupidity, um, but that's what uh, that's the decision that has been made here, and it's one we have to honour. Um, I have a little bit of a, you know, maybe a glimmer of hope. I, in 2000, 2001, the Ontario Court of Appeals, highest court here in Ontario, made a decision on forward-looking infrared cameras, they're called FLIR. And uh, Justice Abella, uh, who was making her way to the Supreme Court of Canada, made a decision saying that the use by police of the FLIR to detect marijuana grow-offs from homes was unconstitutional because it could be an invasion of privacy. They could use this camera to see people taking showers in right. their homes, which was totally ridiculous. And it, it, this, there's shades of this in this decision from what I'm seeing here right now that uh, perhaps the justice themselves did not do the proper due diligence in reading here. Nevertheless, because a lot of uh, judges will have their staff write it for them. Nevertheless, without disparaging, the fact is that uh, I went back to our cabinet uh, at the time under Jean Chrétien, Martin Cochon, and said that, uh, give me the FLIR, look at the FLIR decision, and have it overturned. And in an 8 to nothing decision, about a year later, the uh, federal court, the, the Supreme Court of Canada, overturned uh, Justice Rosalia Bella's uh, decision at the Ontario Supreme Court just before she started to wear her ermine. In other words, just before she became a justice uh, me- uh, member of the Supreme Court of Canada, the other eight members sent her a very strong signal. Eight nothing, you got it wrong, get it right next time hmm. because you're sitting with us now. So now the construction is stopped on this pipeline. What happens now? When will it start? It won't start until the court, uh, a court overturns the decision of the federal court or... Uh, and will Trudeau make that happen? Will Trudeau make that happen sooner than later? Well, he has to. I mean, time's money, and it's, so we uh, talk in weeks here, months. Oh, months, months, years, months, years. <laughs> no, I, you know, uh, Scott, I wasn't kidding when I said that this is not going to happen. No, um, you, yeah. Um, it, it, and if it's going to happen, it certainly won't be under this prime minister's watch. Can He's Andrew Shear get? The, can Andrew Shear get this done? What can he do different than Trudeau? Uh, I would suspect that he's going to go back to the drawing board, get rid of the the onerous changes to the regulations uh, on the NEB board. Um, Yes, he will consult and he will make sure that the consultation is firm, clear and made public. And then he'll move on. And, uh, yeah, but how, does, how will it not get held up in court the way this one was? If you've consulted with people and you've done the due diligence uh, in accordance with uh, the rules of the, uh, the NEB. Um, and the Liberals yeah. didn't? Well, it's not the Liberals that this began under, you know, yeah. in many respects, under the Conservatives. And uh, by the time it got around, it was the Liberals who looked at it a year into their government and said, yeah, this, this, uh, this uh, well, not quite a year, six, eight months into their government, seven years, uh, seven months into their government. Yeah, this passed the smell test. Uh, we're going to allow Line 3 to proceed, uh, which is a rebuild of an existing line over Saskatchewan, Manitoba, into the uh, Dakotas. We're going to... Uh, 
uh, nix the Northern Gateway, and we're going to nix uh, energy. Well, they say they didn't, but it's pretty clear that yeah. they vandalized it with their change of the uh, of the terms of reference. Um, and we're going to allow this one to go through. So they put all their eggs in one basket. I think Northern Gateway is now very viable. Um, but uh, you're going to have to go under. It depends what the federal government uh, decides first when it gets elected. If there's a new government, it's going to say these are the terms by which we want the NEB to operate. Uh, and uh, make the proposal, and we'll mm. have it done. You know, we give uh, no more than 18 months uh, because we think that's that's a that's a proper you know balance. Right. You're going to have everybody and their brother come out and oppose it. That's fine, uh, but you've got 18 months in which to do it. You can't simply delay or use uh, you know yeah. the courts as a vexatious or uh, you know uh, as a as a as a strategy to hold things up, which is exactly what the environmental groups have done in Canada, and I, I applaud them for this. They're smart because we're damn stupid. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Consumer Affairs Critic, Analyst, GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good to talk to you again, Scott. Talk Take care. Soon. I'm sure we'll talk soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Mayor, Fred Eisenberger, met with Premier Doug Ford yesterday, having requested this meeting post-election in June. To find out more of what happened, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is with us now. Fred, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Good to be with you, Scott. So, uh, this was a meeting that you had requested post-election. What was your objective? What did you want to find out in regard to, uh, at this meeting? Well, we were uh, really putting the uh, the issues that uh, the city of Hamilton has been uh, concerned about and has had put on the agenda with previous governments, and uh, we wanted to make sure that this government was aware of them, the, uh, the priority issues uh, like economic development, like our infrastructure investment, uh, fiscal sustainability, the work that we're doing to generate more revenue off of exi- existing resources, and, uh, and, and part of that picture is, uh, is LRT and the BLAST network and the conventional transit growth as well as the, uh, the LRT and the benefits that it provides. Wanted him to understand the, uh, the fullness of that and, uh, and some of the opportunities that uh, we're, we're facing in terms of uh, airport uh, growth district, uh, the, uh, the Stelco lands that are currently now going to be available uh, for redevelopment. Uh, all of which could uh, potentially use and need uh, provincial assistance. So we were there just to let them know what's happening in Hamilton, uh, what's what's uh, what kind of investments are happening that are going to be important, um, the, the Pier 7 and 8 development on the waterfront that uh, is going to generate more revenue and provide more housing. And uh, lastly, the uh, the $50 million plan that we put on the table and, and approved for affordable housing over the next 10 years as a municipality and uh, letting them know that we're uh, ready, willing, and able to partner with them to provide even more affordable housing over and above what we're uh, doing here locally as a municipality. We're one of the very few municipalities that have put these kinds of resources in place, and it was really done with the intention of partnering up with our federal and provincial partners so that we can make a dent in that 6,000 affordable housing, uh, you know, housing short, short, shortfall that we have in our community. So, uh, let's, let's, go, let's start with LRT. Uh, any reason to believe or not to believe that this is in jeopardy in any way or that this is going to come, become another issue uh, around municipal election time? Where is the provincial government on LRT? Well, I mean, I, I heard the little clip from uh, from uh, former Councillor Skelly that uh, certainly is trying to create a, an election mission out of this. And let let me let me play that clip for you one more time, just so our audience knows. Hang on a sec, Mayor. This is truly 
uh, an opportunity for residents of the city to have uh, a say, whether they want it or not. We're not going to wade into it. The decision ultimately is with council. Uh, I believe, really believe, that this is an opportunity for taxpayers and residents of Hamilton to state whether they want it or not. Uh, she says they're not going to weigh in on it. Uh, is she not weighing in on it by opening this can of worms again on a decision that was supposed to be already made? Yeah, so she's doing exactly that and uh, and also working with some anti-LRT uh, candidates out there. Uh, you know, Ms. Kelly has been, uh, you know, working on derailing this uh, right from the moment uh, 18 months ago that she uh, she got here. I would say this has been a process that's been, uh, you know, working for 12 years. It's been studied, analyzed, evaluated. Uh, the benefits analysis said that the biggest bang for the buck for the city of Hamilton is an LRT, both from a transit perspective as well as an economic uplift and uh, urban renewal perspective. So all the way along the corridor, and this is what I, uh, I uh, uh, told the premier, is that you know maybe in Toronto they're purely transit initiatives, and uh, in Hamilton it's both, as it would be in Kitchener-Waterloo or in Ottawa, where it's uh, you know partly transit and 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 uh, and partly about economic renewal and redevelopment and generating more revenue off of existing infrastructure. So I would say those that are railing against this now that they're they're Johnny come latelys on the issue. Uh, they're they're not demonstrating vision or leadership. Uh, there's a lot of information out there, and uh, they're poking at some of the underbelly of this in terms of disruption or you know there are other alternatives. Well. All of those have been evaluated and studied at this point for over the, you know, the past 12 years. Multiple decisions have been made all the way along by city council, not by Fred Eisenberger, by city council, to approve this project moving forward. We're $130 million into it at this point, and, uh, and uh, you know, we're doing it for all the right reasons. So uh, I, I, I would say that uh, this election is more than about LRT. It is about affordable housing, it's about poverty, it's about uh, redevelopment in areas like uh, like Stelco and our, our Airport Employment Growth District. Uh, it's about the opioid addiction that we're currently facing. And so there's a multitude of issues, but uh, I, I, some continue to want to make uh, LRT a, almost a referendum-like issue, and uh, Councilor, former Councillor Skelly certainly is one of them. And I, I think that's very unfortunate, and uh, I'm hoping that they... Uh, Keep their nose out of it and uh, and uh, let uh, let the process evolve as it should, and uh, let us continue to uh, move forward on a project that's so vitally important for the city of Hamilton. Does there seem to be a difference of opinion to what uh, Donna Skelly thinks and what the premier thinks? Because again, it appears that the premier says, "If you guys want it, there you go. There's your money." Uh, we've talked about the billion dollars that's supposed to be sitting there in some big safe that we're all going to use. That if, we, if LRT doesn't go through, mm -hmm. it appears that the, that Donna Skelly and the premier are not on the same page, or are they? Well, no, I'm I'm I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, what we've heard from the premier uh, yesterday and previously is that uh, this is uh, this is Hamilton's uh, project and uh, the money is there. And uh, you know, I I impressed upon him that it's a, it's an approved project in the city of Hamilton. It's approved by Metrolinx and it's approved by the province of Ontario. And so uh, you know, there's not there's no reason to go backwards and second guess all of this uh, great work that's been happening over the last 12 years. There's every every study imaginable to say that uh, the the job benefits are there, that the uh, the economic uplift benefits are there, that the improvement in terms of transit transit movements are going to be part of the uh, the overall project, and that we're dealing with uh, you know, the the blast network, which includes not only LRT but transit expansion throughout the entirety of the city. So I wanted him to understand that, and I certainly believe they did. And the Minister of Transport was there. 
and I think uh, we uh, we give them a pretty comprehensive picture of what the entire blast network and transit enhancements over the next 10 years is going to look like. And uh, no one said this is a bad idea. You should stop. Uh, news today from Metrolinx that uh, due to uh, government uh, halting uh, money being spent till they figure out what's going on, uh, that the purchase of land for the LRT has been halted. Uh, what's the significance of this, your opinion? Uh, so, so as I heard from the premier yesterday, their, their predominant concern had to do with uh, land acquisition for the GO expansion towards Niagara. And uh, that is what uh, what caused them to put on a freeze through all the projects throughout the province of Ontario that Metrolinx is involved with. So it includes Toronto and Mississauga and uh, and Hamilton and uh, and and Niagara in terms of any of the GO projects that are uh, whether it's GO bus or GO transit. Uh, all of them are hold right now until they have a look at uh, some of the land acquisition issues that they have concern about uh, going out towards Niagara. So I think we're uh, we're we're an innocent casualty in this. I don't I don't suspect that it's going to last uh, you know very long for Hamilton. Um, uh, it'll be uh, you know we, we're well well on our way to kind of the, the, the finalizing the land acquisition issues. So as I mentioned, most of the 130 million dollars has to do with that. And so uh, I, I don't I don't see any, uh, any any major issue there. It's not Hamilton specific. I know that for sure. So does this stall the LRT in any way, Mayor? Does this? Uh, how long? You said you weren't sure how long this freeze was going to last, and hopefully not too long. That being said, does this does this slow all parts of the LRT moving forward, or just this particular portion in regard to purchase of land? Just just this particular portion. Everything else is uh, full steam ahead. The RFP, the request for proposals, is out, looking for a consortium to uh, put a bid price on the. Uh, the overall design, build, finance, operate, and maintain. Uh, that happened uh, about four months ago, and uh, it's expected that that will come back to us uh, early in 2019. Uh, the uh, the ongoing design work is continuing. Uh, the ongoing uh, uh, determination in terms of what, what lands are going to be required is also continuing. And, uh, and uh, so there's nothing that's slowing down except that one little element of land acquisition. And uh, as I say, I think a good chunk of that had already been done. And so uh, once once the uh, their investigation is over, whatever they're investigating in the Niagara area, I, I presume that uh, that they're going to release release Metrolinx to continue on with the, the good works and all the other projects that are uh, moving forward in the province. Do you get the feeling that with uh, Donna Skelly saying the comments that she has made, that she has been put out there to kind of ruffle the feathers and hopefully get the PCs out of having to pay for this? No, I don't get that sense at all. And even uh, even Ms. Kelly has said that the uh, the money is there for this project, and uh, and you know Hamilton needs to continue to move forward. Uh, her her willingness to speak about uh, you know trying to create a referendum out of this is uh, is uh, unfortunate. Uh, we've uh, we've had multiple elections on this issue that uh, that has said that uh, we're going to continue to move forward, and uh, and and multiple votes from city council. Uh, by majority to uh, to continue to move in the direction of implementing these, this project. So you can't say that uh, members of council weren't aware that money was was going to be expended, that design was going to be done, that an RFP, they approved all of that. That's gone out and that's happened by the full approval by this uh, this council and full approval of the province of Ontario. So uh, in my mind, this is a a, a happening project. And until somebody says stop, we're going to continue on. All right. One more question, uh, Mr. Mayor. I know you got to run here. Basic income, obviously a project uh, that was started in three cities, one of which Hamilton. Uh, it's been uh, stopped uh, with this government. What did the Premier have to say about that and your concerns? 
Well, we, uh, so there's four municipalities actually impacted by this. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've previously laid out our concern and disappointment on, on the fact that they've uh, kind of arbitrarily cancelled the project when they said they wouldn't. And, uh, you know, per, per, left, left a thousand people in our community kind of stranded on the issue. Now, they haven't, they haven't stopped it yet. They've promised to, uh, to provide a kind of a long runway to, uh, you know, give people an opportunity to, to make any changes they need to, to make before they actually, uh, cancel the program. My pitch to them has been and continues to be they should fulfill the the program and get the analysis and research because I think the uh, the overall belief is from all the analysts that I've spoken to is that this is a cost-saving measure, not a, not an additional expense. It's actually a cost-saving measure that gives people the opportunity to stabilize their lives and not trip into the healthcare system or the policing system or any of the other other areas that uh, are going to cost us far far more more money to be able to have to deal with so i, I impressed upon him the the importance that i thought that the basic income pilot meant to not only the city but to the province of ontario and uh, i don't i don't get the sense that they're going to be changing gears on this issue but i'm hopeful that they're going to be sensitive to the people that are currently on it and at least giving them the opportunity to find alternatives before they uh, cut the rug out from under them. Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, has been with us. Fred, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new video that is making the rounds online of a skinning of a cow is not being treated as animal cruelty, but uh, the incident is being probed to ensure food safety regulations were followed. So is this about butchering an animal for food? Is this some sort of religious uh, procedure or, or, or uh, event? Nobody really knows, and it's very hard to tell from the video itself. Uh, let's bring in Camille Labchuk. She's the executive director of Animal Justice and is with us now. Camille, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's good to be here. So when did you first hear of this or, or see this video? I first heard about it on Monday, and I, I have to say, I, I unfortunately, as an animal rights lawyer, I watch a lot of really terrible videos, but this one really punched me in the gut. And it was uh, pretty difficult uh, to see. So we immediately filed a cruelty complaint with the Ontario SPCA asking them to investigate and determine if this cow was, in fact, alive when it was skinned. Not everybody has seen this video. What did you see? What didn't you like about this? If you haven't seen it, honestly, I do not recommend watching it. It's very, very difficult to see, but it appears to show a cow who whose back legs are um, being lifted up by a forklift. And her head is uh, sort of on the ground, and you can see the head move at a couple points. And while that's happening, there are um, some individuals who are removing her skin. So it, it's unclear whether the head movements mean that she's still alive or if this is the result of some sort of forklift movement. One veterinarian who is very experienced in farmed animals that we showed this to said that uh, she, she believes the cow may still be conscious. It's really hard to definitively say that's the case, but that the authorities should definitely investigate. Why does it matter whether the cow was alive or not? I mean, it's still kind of bizarre. Well, obviously, in, in this country, we don't want to treat animals badly, and there are laws requiring that animals be stunned before they're, they're slaughtered and be unconscious when they're, when they're being killed. And that's, of course, to prevent them from experiencing a significant degree of pain and suffering. So if the cow is still alive, obviously she's experiencing just absolute agony of having her skin removed while she's alive. She's being skinned alive, if that's the case. 
So we find that to be uh, problematic, obviously, and I think all Canadians do as well. I, I know that the Minister of Agriculture provincially actually put out a statement calling um, the video disgusting and shocking as well. So if this happens and the cow is dead, no one's breaking the law? Uh, well, not animal cruelty laws and not um, slaughter regulations. There may still be other meat regulations that, that could be potentially violated. Uh, if you own an animal and you want to eat that animal yourself, you are allowed to butcher the animal and, and consume their meat, but you can't just distribute it or sell it to other people, so that could be an issue in this case as well. And there could be uh, animal transport violations here. There's a whole host of regulations that might come into play, and we really think it's important for uh, the Ontario Ministry to look into this, for the FPCA to look into this, and for the police uh, as well. I know the police have said they're not treating this like an animal cruelty case, but it's unclear what veterinary or expert opinion they got to determine that the cow is not alive. So does that mean if there's no animal cruelty charges from the police that they're out of it? Uh, that appears to be the case. I, I, I think that perhaps uh, perhaps the police are still involved in the case and working with the ministry to determine if other meat regulations have been violated. Uh, but I think the Ontario SPCA needs to step in as well. That's the Provincial Animal Welfare Law Enforcement Agency, uh, as well as OMAFRA, the uh, Ministry of Agriculture and Food and Rural Affairs. They do have more expertise in this area and should seek expert opinions from veterinarians about whether the cow was alive. Uh, so do we know anything about the people or the organization or, or whatever that was doing this? Do we know anything about why they were doing this? What's the motive? Is this about consumption of meat? I, I could not tell you firsthand. I, I have no firsthand knowledge. We have seen some tweets about this and some suggestions and news stories that perhaps it was a ritual slaughter conducted around a religious holiday. We, I don't know that for sure. Um, regardless, it's not advisable for people to slaughter animals um, themselves, and we find it certainly very um, disturbing. Uh, all slaughter is inhumane. All slaughter is cruel, frankly. There's no nice way to kill an animal who doesn't want to die. But I think uh, allowing backyard slaughter certainly raises additional concerns. So does this matter if this was part of a religious ceremony of some sort? Well, it, it matters in the sense that there is exemption to Canada's slaughter laws that apply in slaughterhouses, where regularly an animal must be stunned and become unconscious before their throat is slit open. And of course, the reason that the law requires that is to minimize pain and suffering to the animal. It is still not a nice process, no matter what the law says. But if you at least ensure that an animal is stunned first, you can assume that pain would be minimized. Uh, in Canada, we do have ritual slaughter exemptions which means that for religious reasons, um, and people are, are in certain cases allowed to, or slaughterhouses are allowed to um, slaughter animals without stunning them first. We find this to be problematic. The Canadian Veterinary Medical Association is opposed to slaughter without stunning as well because they say it causes avoidable pain. And if you look at many other countries, they've already banned or restricted stun-free slaughter, which includes Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia, the list goes on. It's, it's becoming recognized that it's simply not okay to do this to animals, no matter the reason. Uh, it seems as if that, you know, as long as this doesn't harm uh, any food or, or infringe on any food safety regulations or such, that it is fine. I mean, um, can it's as if the laws that you're speaking of are all centered around food consumption. But is that what we have here? 
um, can you still do this for religious purposes? Uh, or do these rules only apply if you're consuming the animal? Well, you know, there's there's the ability of people to, to kill and consume animals that they have themselves and they own themselves, but you can't distribute that meat for, for other people. Yeah, but do so we know really, if these people are consuming the, uh, you know, at the very end, I'll, I'll get right to it. Are these people slaughtering this animal to consume the, you know, the meat or something of it, or are they doing it for a religious ceremony? And do the, do, do the rules, do they are they applied differently depending on if it is, you know, a butchering process uh, for meat as opposed to a religious ceremony? Well, the rules for killing animals, um, you know, if there is a religious reason for doing so, then presumably that ritual slaughter loophole with the non-sun slaughter would apply. In this case, we don't know why the individuals were killing the cow. We can assume that it involved um, butchering and eating the animal because they did appear to be removing skin and perhaps other types of... So at this point, you're just assuming they are consuming this for food. Is that accurate? Uh, I, I, I don't want to make an assumption. Um, it's, it's really difficult to say based on the video. All, All right, let me, let me ask you a direct question. If they are doing this as part of a religious ceremony, and that's the only reason they're doing that, how, does that, how do the laws apply to them, and how does that change this discussion? Well, as I've mentioned, because Canada has this loophole that allows religious slaughter to avoid stunning animals first. Um, if the so they may be within the law if they're doing this for religious reasons. No, you, you can't skin an animal who's still alive. It's got to be stunned re- first. Yeah, what the law requires is for religious slaughter reason, reasons, for ritual slaughter, is that um, an animal's throat must be slit. And you, the animal must be allowed to die. You can't start butchering an animal and removing the animal's skin before, um, before that happens, because that would be unnecessary cruelty, that would be distress, that would violate provincial laws that require animals to be free from, from distress. So that would be problematic either way. So that's why authorities have to investigate and decide whether the movements depicted in this video were the result of a conscious animal struggling uh, while being cut up alive. Hmm. So let me ask you a different question. Should we have a policy in regard to slaughtering animals for a ritual, or should that be banned? You know, whether you're doing this for food consumption is one thing, but just to do it for... Uh, a ritual ceremony, should that be allowed? But I guess people could draw the uh, parallel. Is it any different than people who would would uh, kill an animal, a hunter, and then perhaps, uh, you know, stuff it, have it mounted? Is it any different than that? Well, I think if you ask most people, they would say that they're not okay with ritual uh, deaths of animals for this reason. I think a lot of people are not okay with hunting either for amusement purposes or for trophy hunting purposes. The polls certainly show people aren't very accepting uh, of that, and I think a lot of people ask why it's necessary to to allow these types of of things to still happen to animals uh, in this day and age. We in this country, maybe there's some tension between um, what religious rights people have and what rights animals have, and I think animals all typically lose out in those situations. And maybe people are asking um, if they should, or if it's really consistent with this ethic of kindness and compassion that we hold as Canadians to allow types of ritual slaughter. What do you think is going to happen here? Uh, it's odd because it seems as if people are, are sort of doing a politically correct dance around all of this. Uh, what do you think is going to happen moving forward, especially with police saying, nope, we're out, it doesn't look like anything uh, illegal has happened here? Well, we're calling on the police and also the Ontario SPCA and the OMAFRA, uh, the uh, provincial farm agency, 
to look into this further, we really think it's important for them to have experts to review this footage and investigate this matter and for them to determine whether the animal was dead or alive. I know the police have said that they believe that the animal, the cow, was dead, but uh, they haven't released any information about the basis on which they made that decision. And when asked about it by journalists, they said simply that that's all the information they have. So this is the type of case that's just crying out for an expert to get involved and weigh in so we can figure out for once and for all if this was horrific cruelty and live skinning or if this was simply the case of an animal being hoisted by a forklift who appeared to move but was actually dead. Do we know uh, what this what the situation was around this event? Were there people watching? Were there lots of people there? Was this just something happening, you know, that some person or people were doing out in their backyard? Um, was there an organization involved? What do we know about the gathering itself, where this happened? Uh, the only thing that we know for sure, at least to my knowledge, is that it was in Milton, and you can see several individuals in the video, but... I don't know for what purpose necessarily they were doing this. There's no evidence about who they are at this point that I'm aware of. I suspect the police do have more information about this and have conducted further investigations. But the details, uh, to me, are still unclear. Uh, What about an institution or organization involved in in any way? Or is this just seem to be uh, a, a group of people not affiliated with anyone? Um, I don't know that. Uh, I've seen various tweets that suggest perhaps there was potential religious involvement in this situation, but we don't know. Something, and certainly nothing I know that for sure. I believe the police would be better placed to ask that question because I know they have done some investigation into it. Uh, do, do you think this case is getting the attention that it should? Do you think that it's being brushed to the side because it could be, and I say could be, a religious ceremony? Uh, It's hard for me to say. What I know is I've done many interviews on this. There's been a ton of online traffic when this video was posted on our Facebook page and that people are feeling pretty pretty appalled about this. And And I think the reason for that is that most slaughter is hidden behind closed doors. The public is not allowed into slaughterhouses. We don't really have an effective way to oversee what happens there. I think if slaughterhouses had glass walls, perhaps a lot more of us would be vegetarian. Hmm. But when this video, uh, when a video like this does come out and people are exposed to the ugly reality of animal slaughter and what it looks like, I think that's a, a really visceral reaction for people. And I think that's why we are seeing a fair number of news stories. I think that's why we're talking about it today on your show. And I think it's why the police and uh, animal welfare authorities really need to investigate this further. I think people are tolerant or certainly maybe more tolerant of it. And, uh, you know, I'm just guessing here if it's, you know, if people are consuming the animal and this is, you know, you're using it for meat uh, the way, you know, our ancestors once did. I think if it's being slaughtered for religious purposes, I think society might view it differently. No. You know, that's hard for me to say because I find all of it objectionable, and I think no matter uh, for what reason animal slaughter is being done, it's a really ugly, inhumane, cruel process. Mm. You know, when you look at the reality of modern farming in this day and age, it is certainly a far cry from what our ancestors ever would have experienced. These days, we can find thousands, hundreds of thousands of animals sometimes in dark, windowless barns. They spend their lives there. They're raised to a certain weight when they're big enough to slaughter. And then we ship them on crowded trucks, sometimes for days at a time without food and water or rest, in extremely hot or very cold conditions. They then end up at a slaughterhouse, and, um, you know, I can tell you I've seen lots of footage from inside slaughterhouses. 
and even killings that aren't botched and go the way they're supposed to, where an animal is stunned and then has their throat slit. None of that is pretty, and you can tell that the animals are terrified. You can tell that they know what's coming and that they don't want to be there. So why I would encourage anyone who finds this to be unnatural and problematic to look into it a bit further and decide if they want to be part of that system. So in other words, you don't care if it's food production or for uh, some sort of religious ceremony, no slaughter of an animal is, is good for you. Yeah, well, you know, what I'm saying is I think that the reality in this modern age and day of slaughtering animals for food, um, you know, ritual slaughterhouse, uh, uh, the slaughtering animals for, for sacrificial reasons doesn't really happen inside slaughterhouses, but... Um, certain religious standards um, involving ritual sacrifice do, and and that's not pretty either. So I think a lot of people are questioning whether this is still an appropriate system in in 2018 and whether this is the way that we want to be treating animals. So are you a vegetarian, Camille? Yeah, I've actually been vegan for 11 years, and I always say that animal rights lawyers uh, should not eat our clients. <laughs> Pretty sure it's against them. Oh man, that is there. you need that on a shirt, Camille. Uh, Camille, <laughs> you'd sell a bazillion of those around the office. Camille Labchuk has been with us, executive director, of Animal Justice. Thanks for the time, much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank Take you. care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.